A man named Leonard Sweet writes in his book called Jesus Drives Me Crazy. He says, so much of what the Bible teaches us is just nuts, according to the world. Well, Jesus taught that the way up is down, the way in is out, the way to be first is last, the way to success is service, the way of attainment is replenishment, the way of strength is weakness, the way of security is vulnerability, the way of protection is forgiveness, even to the point of seven times 70. The way of life is death, death to self death to society, death to family. Know your strengths. Why? Because that's the only way that you can lay them down. God's power is made perfect. Where? In your weakness. Want to get the most? Go to where the least is. Want to be free? Give complete control to God. Want to become great? Become the least. Want to find yourself? Forget yourself. Want to honor? Honor yourself with humility. Want to get even with your enemies? Bless them, love them, pray for them. The atheistic philosopher Nietzsche was right. To a people clawing their way to reach the top of their dung heap, this stuff is nuts. The gospel presents crazy ways of thinking about power, crazy definitions of success, absurd ideas and images about the meaning and purpose of life, crazy storylines that no author would ever plot. And in the center of all that craziness is a God that loves like crazy. Yeah. This morning we come to a passage in Romans as we work our way through the book of Romans that is about a God who loves like crazy. A God who loves in a way that we can't really fully comprehend, grab hold of, and even attempt to explain. If you would turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 6. We're going to go verse 6 to 11 this morning. I was supposed to make it to verse 21. I'm behind schedule. We're not going to make it there. It's okay. God doesn't care. He only cares what of the scripture that we get into us, not how much scripture we get through. Does that make sense? Okay. This is what it says. I'm reading out of the NIV this morning. Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 6. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, when we were God's enemies, We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, as we dive into these scriptures this morning, it paints a graphic picture for us to try to get our minds around. And I know that in some ways, Father, this is going to be like calculus to squirrels. We're not going to be able to grab a hold of all of it. But if we can just grab some of it, Father, I believe this changes our life, changes how we think. It changes everything we do. If we can just understand a fraction of the depth of your incredible love, that would be amazing. So, Father, speak to our hearts, speak to our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. This passage begins with a really kind of odd thing. You see, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. We were still powerless. You ever felt powerless? There have been times in my life when I have felt completely powerless. When we were, when we were young and, and Jan and I were trying to start a family, we went through a couple of miscarriages. And there's nothing more powerless feeling for, I think, a man than to watch his wife go through something like that. Because there is nothing you can do. The only thing that you have is to fall on your knees and seek God. I have felt that kind of powerlessness in my life. The truth is that we've all been into a place of powerlessness in our life at some time or another. Before a person becomes a believer, the Bible describes them as powerless. It seems strange because if you look around, there are a lot of people in this world who have no relationship with Jesus Christ, yet seem to wield an immense amount of power. So what is this powerless thing that the Bible's talking about here in verse 6, where it says, you see, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. The important part here to understand is that it is the unbeliever, denoted by the word ungodly in the verse, that is being called powerless. They are, despite what may appear to the human eye, powerless people in the context of God. They are powerless in several ways. First, they are powerless to resist Satan. Now, every one of us stood on this side of the power equation at one time in our life. Before we committed our heart and our life to God, we were powerless just as the world is powerless. Powerless to resist Satan. 1 John 5.19 says, We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Now, I'm sure that most non-believers would argue the point that Satan has a hold on their life. But listen, the mere fact that they do not acknowledge, believe, or follow Jesus is evidence of that truth. Somehow, somewhere, they bought into a lie about God and so hold their lives apart from his loving embrace. The only way that can happen is if you allow Satan in between you and God. That's what it means to be powerless in regards to Satan. They're also powerless to escape sin. Galatians 3.22 says, but the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Picture this idea. Picture a falling coin moving towards the earth because of the influence of gravity. 
In itself, the coin is powerless to overcome the downward pull of the earth. It is in its very nature destined to fall. But before it's gone far, someone reaches out an arm, grabs hold of the coin and holds it firmly and then lifts it higher and higher in defiance of the law of gravity. The law of the spirit of life in that person's arm overcomes the law of gravity, right? This does not mean that the original law has ceased to operate, but it does mean that a higher law has come into play. We sin by nature because we are victims of the fall and and, and because it's the nature of a fallen man to sin. But in Christ Jesus, a higher law operates, the law of the spirit of life. And this is the law that sets us free from the lesser law of sin and death. The limitation of the coin illustration, of course, lies in the fact that the coin has no will of its own, whereas we do. It is possible for us to fail to enjoy release from the control of sin by disbelief or by disobedience to God. Either way, whether we're non-believing or we're believing and disobedient, we will come to grips with that law. And the only power to save us from it is the law of life that comes in Christ Jesus that we have to turn to lest we become, again, entrapped, captured, or a prisoner of sin itself. Becoming a believer doesn't make you sinless, okay? But it should make you sin less. It should bring you into a place where obedience becomes the law of life that contradicts the law of sin and death. Does that make sense? As a non-believer, we are also powerless to escape death. That was our future as a non-believer. Romans 8 says, the mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. Proverbs 14 says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. Psalm 89 says, what man can live and not see death or save himself from the power of the grave? As non-believers, we were once prisoners of this idea of death. In fact, death was considered to be the final enemy, the, the enemy that couldn't be defeated before Jesus. In 1987, all of America stopped to watch a real-life drama unfold in Midland, Texas. You might have remembered this. I remember it. I remember seeing it on the TV. I remember, what's going to happen? 18-month-old Jessica McClure fell down an abandoned well and was trapped. Remember that? Head first, down an abandoned well. Millions of Americans watched the story of baby Jessica unfold. To the relief of everyone, Jessica came out of the well on October 16th of 1987. In case you don't remember the details of the story, let me give you a summary of what happened. After 55 grueling hours trapped at the bottom of a 22-foot well, 18-month-old Jessica clawed her way out of the bottom of the pit, inch by inch, digging her little toes and fingers into the side of the well. Wow, what a kid. Now you may be thinking, whoa, that's not, that's not what I saw in the news. She didn't climb out. She was totally helpless down there. 
She was powerless to save herself. If she hadn't been rescued by all those people who dug down beside the well and extracted her, she would have perished down there. And you know what? You're exactly right. You and I were both in that same situation, just like Jessica. The Bible says at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. We were also powerless to please God at that point. Before we became believers, as unbelievers, there wasn't any way we could please God. In fact, the Bible tells us that we were dead in our trespasses. We weren't connected to God, and we didn't have the option to be connected to God. In theology, they call this the trichotomy of man, which is kind of a strange word. Basically, it means that you and I are all made up of three parts. You have a body, you have a soul, and you have a spirit. Body is obviously pretty easy to to understand, right? Your soul is what controls your body. Your soul is made up of your will, your intellect, and your emotion. And while you are a non-believer, your will, intellect, and emotion basically controlled what your body did. Why? Because the spirit was dead. But when you accepted Christ, you came alive in Christ. Your spirit, according to the Bible, was quickened. It was brought to life. Now, the spirit seeks to put itself in submission to the spirit of God. You have to understand, the Holy Spirit indwells you, okay? But that is not your spirit. That is the Holy Spirit. You have a spirit too, and your spirit seeks to come under the control of the Spirit of God, because that's what it was quickened to do. That's what it was brought to life to do. Now, here's the problem. The soul, your intellect, your will, and your emotions have been in control of the body until that point. They still want to control the body. We have to bring this soul thing by our own choice, our own will, our own emotions, our own intellect, under submission to our spirit, who is under submission to the Holy Spirit who indwells us, if the body is going to live differently, okay? That's just what's called the trichotomy of man. Before you were a believer, you were powerless to please God because the spirit wasn't alive to connect to the Holy Spirit to to do that, to bring you to a place where you could do things that pleased God because you were doing them in the power, strength, and guidance of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8.8 says, those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. It's just a fact. It just doesn't happen. Those are the things that we were powerless to do before Christ. All that changes when we give our life to Jesus. Verse 7 We can understand how a person might be inspired to give their life for another if that person were really good or really noble, right? Verse 7 is is awesome. It says, Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. And we can kind of understand that. We can understand how duty might inspire somebody to take a bullet for the person they've sworn to protect especially if you're, you know, the Secret Service and you're protecting the president. We can understand a noble heart that lays down its life for perhaps an innocent child. We can understand how love might motivate a person to die for their beloved 
whether it be someone, a spouse that they love or a child that they love. There are many who have done just that thing. But that's not what happened here. How do we wrap our minds around the fact that Jesus chose to die for us when we didn't even yet know him? Worse yet, when we were living in our sinful rebellion against God. It's unexplainable. It's absurd. But this much I know. The concept brings a whole new picture for me. It brings a whole new picture to the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. Jesus says this, You have heard that it is said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Did you catch the last part of that verse? That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. To love our enemies, folks, is an indication that you are in fact being made into the image of Christ. When you love your enemies, you're doing exactly what Jesus did when he loved you. Does that make sense? That's what verse 8 is saying. God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, while we were estranged from God, while we were not interested in God, Christ died for us. Human love tends to be a response to the love of another person. In other words, we tend to love those who return our love, don't we? That's just kind of normal human response. We also tend to think that God loves on the same level. There's a problem with that, though. Charles Hodge explains this. If God loved us because we loved him, he would only love us so long as we loved him. And it would be on that condition as well. And then our salvation would be in jeopardy because it would depend on the consistency of our own treacherous hearts. Wouldn't that be scary? I'm so glad God isn't like me. I would be in a world of hurt. We talk about being made in the image of God and being transformed into the image of Christ. Folks, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where you can get out the proverbial measuring stick of your Christian walk and check your progress into transformation. Do you really love your enemies? Can you? Do you love those who don't even care to acknowledge that you exist? Can you? Do you love those who can't stand your presence? Would you dare to love those who really hate you? That's what Jesus did. It's a scary way to evaluate how we're doing, isn't it? It is great and it is glorious to talk about the love of God towards us. And, and, and I love doing that. And it's important. It's an important truth to understand. God's love is wonderful. It's amazing. It's beyond my ability to put into words. But listen, according to Jesus, that's the kind of love we're supposed to have as people of his, as his family. It's a little harder to talk about our loving other people, isn't it? a little more difficult. It's a little more challenging when the other people don't love us, can't stand us, maybe even hate us. The good news is that you don't have to figure out how to love those people. God already did that. 
All you have to do is let him show it through you. That means you have to get your feelings, get your pride, get your good self out of the way. Learn to let go of offense and just love. This brings up one more thing that I want to cover. I've covered it before, but I don't think this can be said too much. If being like Jesus, folks, means that we're to love even our enemies, how much more do you think that we should love one another who are part of the family of God? Really? Even when people do things that we don't understand, even when they do things that we don't agree with, even when they do things that hurt or wound us, we are called to love one another. And not just any love. First Peter says that we're to love one another fervently from the heart. That means all of us invested, the whole being invested in loving one another. Even if a brother or sister in Christ hurts or wounds us, loving them is not an option. Folks, it's a commandment. Forgiving them is not an option. It's also a commandment. Folks, the body of Christ, some of you are stopping and you're thinking here right now, really, do I have to forgive that other person? Do I have to love that? Really? I mean, you have no idea how much they hurt me. You have no idea how often they've hurt me. Really? I'll bet you didn't keep track past the 70 times 7. And even if you did, that's supposed to be a mythical number, not a real one. Okay? That was supposed to be something no one was actually going to keep tally of. Listen, the body of Christ is what we represent on this planet. Do you understand that? The rest of the world is looking at the church because we represent Jesus. We represent God to the entire planet. The church has, for the most part, done a bang-up job of forgetting that when it comes to how we love one another, the world is watching. Jesus said that they would. In fact, he said that they would know us Know that we were his by the way that we love one another. We think that loving one another means that we have to agree with one another, and that's kind of a problem. Therefore, if we don't agree, we separate ourselves. Why? Well, because if we don't separate ourselves, then it's hard for us to accomplish the loving one another because when we don't agree, somehow love gets tossed to the side, gets kicked to the curb. We have all these different churches because we think that if we have to love, then we need to find a place where agreement allows such love. Folks, do you think that Jesus, hanging on a cross and asking Father God to forgive those who were killing him, agreed with what they were doing? If you do, I have, I have some news for you. He wasn't looking forward to the cross. The Garden of Gethsemane proves that he didn't want to endure that kind of pain. He also didn't want to endure the separation that it would cost him from Father God because taking on our sin is why he said, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? Because for the first time in all of eternity, there was something between him and the Father. He didn't want to go through that. Still, Still, he loved those people 
who were crucifying enough to beg Father God to forgive them because they didn't know what they were doing. I really wish I didn't feel compelled to say this, but I do. You know what, folks? It's time for us, the body of Christ, to be the body of Christ to commit ourselves to loving one another fervently from the heart as we're commanded to do in Scripture so that the world will know that we belong to Jesus. And it begins here in Santa Maria. Amen? Amen? Amen. Amen. Okay, okay. The, the amen thing, okay? You've you, you got you to really follow this very carefully. Did anybody not say amen? No one's willing to do that. Okay. You know what it means when you say amen? So be it. It is a declaration of agreement, right? If it's a declaration of agreement and we just all agreed, then I think maybe we need to do something about that agreement, right? I have a challenge for you. You can take this challenge or you can reject this challenge, but I'm going to put it in front of you anyway. I want you to repeat after me an oath. I solemnly swear that I will not let the enemy use woundedness to get me to disassociate myself from this body of Christ. I will speak in love, walk in love, and be in love with my brothers and sisters in this house and the wider body of Christ, worshiping in other places. I will not let the enemy drive any kind of wedge between me and my family in Christ. As I love God with all that I am, so shall I love those in Christ. To this I pledge my heart. Amen. Amen. Okay. You swore it. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> Let me put this next part just as frank and just as bluntly. You just committed yourself to loving everyone in this room more than you love yourself. No matter if they disappoint you in any way, you are now committed to a relationship with them. That means no one here gets to check out of this fellowship because so-and-so hurt them, so-and-so disappointed them, so-and-so ignored them, or whatever. If you know or think that someone has a problem with you, it's your responsibility to love them out of it. Understand what I'm saying here, okay? It does not mean that you get to go to the other person and tell them about all that they did to you and how they hurt you and their need to repent. 
It means just the opposite. You know what? It means that you get on your knees and you ask what you did to them and what you need to repent of to restore the relationship of love. And you do it in love. Why? Because whatever happened to cause the issue probably started with you, and even if it didn't, it needs to end with you. Amen? All right. I am really, really tired of watching people exit the body of Christ or church hop or whatever because they don't understand this. God will move his players around. And I am not against that at all. He may call you to another place. He may call you to another city. He may call you to another state, country, whatever kind of thing. But he never lets you make excuses to exit the fellowship of the body of Christ. Don't let the enemy convince you otherwise. Last thing that I see in this passage of Scripture. We've talked about powerlessness before Christ. We've talked about the power of love, God's love for us, and and our need to love in the same way. I want to talk about the power of God because it's in this passage as well, and you need to see this. Verses 9 and 10, we started out with the power of sin. We looked at the power of love. The last part is the power of God that will not let go of you. Verse 9 says, Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Him being Jesus, okay? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Paul is doing something beautiful here. Uh, It's easy to miss. But he's doing something beautiful here. He's building a case for our joy. Believe it or not, that's what he's doing. He started with the idea that we were helpless prisoners of sin before Jesus. He introduces Jesus as the demonstration of God's love toward helpless prisoners. He declares our salvation, the fact that we've been justified, been made right before God through the blood of Jesus. And then he opens the floodgates of the goodness of God towards us. Verse 9, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? The how much more indicates that what Paul is about to disclose is even more amazing than what he has already revealed. Think about this. More amazing than helpless rebels against God being given grace, mercy, and love in the midst of their rebellion, not after they got over it, while they were still in sin. This is more amazing than that. More amazing, more incredible. Think about this. If God had the power and the desire to redeem us in the first place, how much more does he have the power and the desire to keep us redeemed? If he loved us so deeply and passionately that he didn't even spare his own son but gave him up to death to redeem us, how much more will that same love carry us through this life and into the next? If Jesus' death could save us, how much more can his life sustain us? 
transform us, deliver us into his presence. I'm, I'm talking about the eternal security of the believer, yes. The assurance of a future with Jesus that belongs to every person who believes in his name, claiming him as Lord and Savior over their life. He provides for and calls out of the dark prison of a powerless life, lavishing his amazing love on us so that it transforms us. And he doesn't stop there. He also provides his sustaining power as he walks with us through this life and into the next. This is Paul's case for joy. Look at, look at verse 11. This is so cool. Now only, not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Remember last week, I told you what the word rejoice means. It means to have joy over and over and over again, to have continual joy over something because, folks, because his amazing love has saved us. His amazing love has reconciled us. His amazing love has justified us before the Son. You know what justified means? Justified is a legal term that means not guilty. He's placed us in a place of not guilty, a place that we cannot even be removed from. A lot of people worry about this whole eternal security issue. I want you to understand this really well this morning. If you are in Christ Jesus, if you have made your life come under the submission of Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior, you have no reason whatsoever to fear for your eternal life. None whatsoever. And I'm not saying that because you said something about that this morning, but I'm glad that you did. We need not fear. The Bible is very clear about this. Very clear. No one's going to rip you out of the hand of Jesus. Not even you are going to do that. Not your sin. Your sin's been forgiven. It's been removed as far as the east is from the west. That means the sin in the past, the sin right now, and the sin you might do in the future has been removed from you. Your standing is justified. And as long as you live in that relationship, that abiding relationship with Christ, there's no way that you're ever going to renounce it. There's no way that you're ever going to turn your back on it. Does that make sense? You need never fear for your salvation. That's what eternal security is. I know a lot of people get confused with that, maybe partly because you know, you've heard the stories about the once saved, always saved stuff. I don't agree with that, by the way. Once saved, always saved is a crock. It's not a scriptural concept. Not, not in the way that it's understood today. It is a scriptural concept only in the idea that we are eternally saved. But the one saved always saved says that, you know, if you pray a prayer, uh, you're automatically in. 
you get to go to heaven no matter how you live. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches something very different from that. It teaches about a relationship. And so once saved, always saved, that, that, that's, that's what you, a pastor tells a grandma at, at Johnny's funeral because Johnny died in, in his sin, but he prayed a prayer when he was eight years old and he never lived that prayer out. But it comforts grandma to think that. It's just not a biblical concept. You have to understand that. We are in relationship with God. Praying the prayer is just words until the prayer becomes the way we live. Does that make sense? We need to live connected. Why would Jesus spend so much time talking about being connected? I am the vine, you are the branches, okay? Abide in me because it is just that. It is a connection with God. It's not a, a, some words we happen to say. This is what we rejoice over. This is what Paul is after. We rejoice over this amazing reconciliation, over this amazing, incredible, mind-blowing love of God that provides the opportunity for us to do just that, connect with him through Jesus. If you haven't made that connection, you need to see me after the service is over this morning. Begin the connection now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just, it's so easy for me to get overwhelmed with your love because I know what it takes for you to love me. It took everything that Jesus went to the cross to do to love me. And it doesn't matter to you how many times I disappoint you. It doesn't matter to you how many times I fail and fall. Father, you pick me up, you dust me off, and you grab my hand and start walking again because your amazing love just cannot let go. Father, I pray that as a people we would grab onto this concept because if we do, I believe it will change the way we walk. It will change the way we live. It will change the way the world sees us. It will change this body, this fellowship. Because we are challenged to love the way you love. We are called to love the way that you love. And that's exactly the road that we need to be on. So I thank you, Father, that you give us the challenge that comes from your heart, that you, not, you don't just leave us, Father, leave me to try to figure out how to do that. You gave us Jesus to show us how to do that. And then you gave us the Holy Spirit to empower us to do that. And so we stand before you amazed and rejoicing in your goodness towards us. Thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen.